0: Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is his story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story. Because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I am Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. If I had to put like a title to tonight's like passage that we're talking about as like a theme, I'd call it Morden Conquers Through God's Unconquerable Love. And I think that'll become really clear as we look at this passage. Uh, if we need a reminder, we're in Romans eight thirty one through 39. So this is, again, the last passage of Romans 8. So therefore, the last passage we'll be doing on this particular series. But yeah, verses 31 through 39 really fit together as such a good thing. And it's one of those passages you can turn to on its own, even if you weren't studying Romans 8 as a whole. It's such a good passage. But I think it's even better when you... Just frame it in the context of everything we've been talking about. So, actually, if you look at the very first verse, uh, verse thirty-one, it, it starts off by saying this: "Therefore, what shall we say to these things?" Romans eight thirty-one, right? So that immediately is begging the question, like, so what things are in view? And I think instead of just choosing one certain part of Romans eight to be the point of reference, or even just Romans eight as a whole, I think that he's summing up everything that's been spoken of in Romans as this letter as a whole up to this point. Because if you think about it, uh, especially for those of you who have uh, read Romans quite a few times or studied it or whatever, you see that Paul really does have one giant argument he's been doing through and through. And so there's a few points in Romans that Paul is going to, I guess, sum it up again and again. So just like, okay, so far, here's where we're at, this. And this is one of those times I think he's doing it. So he's saying, therefore, what shall we say to these things? In light of all that we've laid out, traversed this giant landscape, this big argument, all the, the gospel, the righteous, righteousness of God revealed in Christ, uh, and then up until Romans 8, and the life in the spirit that we've been talking about. All these themes are now bound together by this theme of like God's unbreakable love, which is a really awesome theme. So let's read verses 31 through 37 and discuss it. But yeah, so I'll read and track along. Therefore, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can stand against us? Since indeed God did not spare his own son, but rather gave him over on behalf of all of us, How will he not also with him freely give us all things in the world to come? Who can bring an accusation against God's chosen people? God is the judge who pronounces righteousness. Who is the one who can pronounce condemnation? The Messiah Jesus is the one who died, and moreover, the one who was raised, who is even at the right hand of God, who even continues to intercede for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Could affliction, distress, or persecution, could hunger or lack of clothing, could danger or sword, just as it is written, because of you we were being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are super conquerors through the one who has loved us. So if you notice here, maybe you notice it even just by reading it, there's a lot of rhetorical questions in this passage. And rhetorical questions in the ancient world especially, this was a way of getting the audience to participate in the argument. And this is no exception. So uh, Romans 8.31 is that perfect example. If God is for us, well, it's conveying a really established fact. God is for us. So it's, you don't read these rhetorical questions with any sort of doubt. That is totally not the point of these rhetorical questions. The point is for audience participation to like see the implied answer of it. So uh, yeah, and that that's why I'd be... To make the subtext really clear you'd read it's like if god is for us and he is so the question who can stand against us assumes that us christians we we have like an adversary and that's the whole point i mean there's no like power or rhetorical power to this passage if we don't recognize that there are adversaries that we have both human and i guess like spiritual spiritual enemies too right? That's that's not completely new news to most of us. But the rhetorical point that he's making right there is that nobody, no matter who the adversary is, whoever you pinpoint that or identify that to be, can overcome or stand against Christians. Why? Because God is for us. And the evidence by which God, like that we can be sure that God is for us, is because he didn't spare his own son. Like, it's, it's one of those times that you, when you do like a greater to, uh, sorry, a lesser to greater or how much more effect. If God did not spare his own son for us, then how much more? Like, what more can God give? Well, nothing. He gave everything. That, that, that's, that's kind of the whole point right there. And so the assurance of God being for us is based on the way in which he gave Jesus and gave him over on behalf of us. And I think this, if, if I could slow down for a second on this point, when that phrase, God gave him over on behalf of us, this has a really strong like word link to the gospel tradition. So if you think about the gospel accounts, and especially in the Passion narrative, so the end of the gospel accounts, each of them, no matter how they organize their material, they conclude with Jesus, you know, his uh, entry and then his trial, death, and resurrection, all, all of that, right? So the verb gave him over um, in Romans 8.32 appears in the gospels when Judas was giving him over. So that verb for when it says he, like, God gave Jesus over for us also appears in the Gospels, especially when Judas um, was given over to, gave Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. You can see this uh, all throughout there. And now the interesting thing that's like really different about this is if you think about it, how it's almost like there's two different vantage points on how we look at Jesus's death. Like from a human perspective, what happened in those last events was Judas handed Jesus over as an act of betrayal, and then Jesus was tried and then put to death, right? But from what, what how do you see that differently from God's perspective? It's that God handed Jesus over for us. Do you see that really big difference? Like, almost if you stand in the disciples' shoes to view this in two different ways. When they originally saw the passion narrative, they saw, oh my gosh, like, our, our rabbi, the Messiah, is now being taken from us. He's been handed over, and we are no longer in control of what's going on. They saw it as a defeat at first, right? Because, I mean, they didn't fully understand the significance of Jesus' death and then yeah, That's his... why Peter flipped out. Yeah, that's why Peter flipped out. Yeah, true. No, so because they didn't understand the significance of what was going on, they saw the act of Jesus being handed over as a loss. But do you see how Paul now comes through it with hindsight and shows us in Romans chapter 8, it was God who handed Jesus over for us. If Jesus just felt physical pain of being crucified, that wasn't unique in the ancient Roman context. Many people were crucified. Jesus wasn't the first and only person ever crucified. That wasn't what made this event so significant. Obviously, on the surface, that's what a lot of onlookers just saw, but there was something far more significant with a cosmic significance going on, on the cross. Things that you literally couldn't see in the seen realm, right? And so that's why the, uh, the, the cross was also like cosmic spiritual warfare, Jesus absorbing evil and sin's worst upon himself, right? And so that's why it's just, it's so multidimensional in thinking about it. But yeah, in in the context of Romans 8, I mean, with love being that main theme that the end of Romans 8 is driving through, it's like an analogy to demonstrate God's love can be made where it's like any loving parent, uh, I, for example, I would not give up my son for the whole world, I wouldn't, like, but God gives his son for the whole world. Like it's 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 that baffling, and, and to like you know press that further as you mentioned Heather. I mean, in as Paul mentioned earlier in Romans, Romans chapter five, verse six through eight. You know, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, uh, for the ungodly. For and that's in Romans four as well. God justifies the ungodly, and so it's just one of those things that like while we were in complete rebellion to God, while we were shaking our fists, while we hated God, while we scorned all those things, while all those things were. The love of God came to intervene like for us. That is just so mind-boggling. To what extent is God for you? To the point to where even when you hated him, he loved you. See, like, yeah, that's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, but not only is it that, like, God gave him for us, as we just said, but even in Romans 8, verse 35, if you read it again on your own, you'll see that, Christ himself subjected himself to this. It's the love of Christ that also uh, brings about the event of the cross. And so the the logic of Romans 8.32 is this, that if God freely gave Jesus for our redemption, how much more will he give uh, us everything else that pertains to the blessings of our redemption? And it, again, the rhetoric is like, yeah, nothing nothing is held back from you. So notice how also in this passage that it's God who justifies us that that's the role of a judge by the way to pronounce what is someone who is righteous and God says that God is the one who pronounces this righteousness on us now the other thing that i was thinking about with this passage as we read this is that quite astoundingly there might be some really valid accusations brought against us as God's people but those don't override God's rule as he like bangs the gavel and pronounces you a christian as righteous and that's what Paul makes this point. He made this point earlier in Romans chapter four, verse five, where it says that uh, the one who justifies, God is the one who justifies the ungodly. So, because we're declared right with him on the basis of faith, right? And so I guess how crazy is it that basically the, the, the very enemy of our soul can bring very valid accusations against you, <laughs> as is prosecution, but they fall flat because we have the best defense with Jesus' sacrifice covering us. So again, it's, you are declared righteous not because you actually have the right defense, uh, not, not because of on your own merit, but because of Jesus' sacrifice. So although the, the accusations are valid, they fall flat and they have no weight there because the pronunciation's already been done. Like You are declared righteous in Christ, of course. So, yeah, it's like the status of righteousness comes as a gift of faith in Christ before the reality of righteousness takes shape in our life. And I want to say that again and just make you chew on this a little bit. The very status of being called right, right with God, righteous, justified, whatever word you want to put right there, that comes as a gift of faith. When you place your trust in Jesus, you are declared right uh, in Christ. Before all that happens, before the reality of righteousness takes shape in your life. In other words, before that whole, like, ethical transformation in your life even takes shape, you were already declared righteous. Right, so that's the status that we talk about. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be the status part of it. And that, that's where, like, a concept like righteousness is one of those ones that is a little bit of a both-and. It's a status, and it's something that, depending on in context of what Bible passage you're looking at, it's also an ethical term. But in both contexts, I would, I would actually say that it's, it's a covenant term. Righteousness is very much a covenant, uh, is covenant language. And so that actually makes sense of the status, though. So in other words, you are put in right covenant relationship with God in Christ. And then over time, as you walk with Jesus, the ethics or like lifestyle you'd expect from that covenant relationship come out in your life. Things like the fruit of the Spirit. Maturing in Christ Christ and so on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like a progression in our life and how we grow and grow in righteousness. I mean, we've fleshed this out before, but always worth repeating, always worth repeating that, like, you don't grow in holiness, like, that's the, technically the wrong term. You, like, grow in righteousness, you grow in maturity, you grow in Christ-likeness. Because holiness, uh, I, I was even thinking about this the other day, I don't think I've said this in this room, and I even affirmed this and, like, confirmed it through some study. There's no Greek or Hebrew terms for holier. Isn't that interesting? So like, you know, because I know we've made that point before that like holiness is a status, not an objective, that you are holy. You don't grow in holiness. You might grow in a way that your lifestyle lives up to the status you've already been given in Christ. So you are holy and you might, you, you ought to, I guess, you <laughs> you ought to live a holy life that reflects who you are. And sometimes we don't, but we grow in a, in a life like Christ-likeness that reflects our holiness, but if you think about it, or maybe you didn't think about it, so let me rephrase this. If you didn't know this, there is no Greek or Hebrew term that has holier is the right uh, gloss or right definition for it. None. No terms for that. It's interesting, because if, the, if, if holiness was a spectrum, you would have terms like that. Because you do have, those are comparative terms, right? You have comparative terms in Greek and Hebrew for like any other word, right? And so with holiness, you don't. Why? Because this is not, this is not some new argument that I'm coming up with right here. Like, I'm just reaffirming something that's ancient. That holiness was always seen as something that is, you either are or you aren't, and there's no middle ground. And so it's not holier, it's just holy or not holy. It's that simple uh, in that regard. But yeah, so all that to say, that was kind of an anecdote. But like, righteousness, on the other hand, being like a covenant term and stuff, like I, I would say you can grow in righteousness, absolutely. I mean, I think we should grow in righteousness. You are declared right and righteous in God's eyes, but you can grow in such a way that like, righteousness comes forth in your life. But I know, hopefully all that makes sense. In Romans 8.34, it then moves to something even more intense. So not only is it that no one can bring an accusation against us, it's now a question about pronouncing judgment uh, upon God's people. So this is the same like root word that was used of condemnation back in Romans eight one. So remember in Romans eight one, there's the, now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Well, what does Romans eight thirty four say? So want to read it? Uh, who then is the one who condemns? Yeah. No who? One. Thank you. Yeah. Who is the one who condemns? No one can right? And so do you see how that's even even more intense form? So not only can no one bring an accusation against someone who's in Christ, no one can now pronounce condemnation. Because if you remember back when we talked about what condemnation meant, it's sometimes just Christian jargon to us. But that was the pronunciation of a death sentence. So no one could pronounce that death sentence, that final guilt upon us. And so no one can do it. Why? Because Christ has died for us and has been raised, and even further, and He keeps doing this. Who was this? Who is this? Who even intercedes on behalf of us? That is so cool. His His sacrifice, although was a real event in real space and time, over two thousand years ago, you know, um, the effects of that are still making intercession. He is still making intercession for you on the basis of that act, right there. Because the accuser is at our door still making accusations yeah, yeah. So because we because because we 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 create cause for the accuser yeah. to make yeah. right i mean today i i guarantee i've done plenty of things that the accuser can like i said going back to something earlier there are valid accusations that can be brought against all of us to god like hey like do you do you see braden guilty Falls flat though because christ continues to make intercession his uh, do you, to borrow the language of Hebrews, it'd be a fun little study if you ever wanted to, to go through. Uh, most of your translations should so- have something to the effect of saying once and for all a lot of times in Hebrews. Highlight, circle, or underline that phrase as you read through Hebrews. When it talks about the work, finished work of Christ, just notice all the times it says once and for all. Once and for all. I love that because the once refers to that past historical event, and the for all refers to the continual relevance of that sacrifice. It happened once in the past continues to have relevance for you his sacrifice has covered you in that like romans 8 is something to keep in your arsenal and that's what i've been trying to say i think this whole chapter is one of those chapters that every part of romans 8 should be something that you like you know, dog ear or whatever in your Bible, like Mark to go back to you, because whether you're talking about encouragement for who you are or like your future hope or uh, the Spirit's help in your life or whatever it is, like these things are really helpful to keep in your tool belt, to keep coming back to, I need this reminder. I think we need Romans 8 every single week, right? You need some of those reminders in there. And so as pertaining to this passage, Heather, I agree that like whenever there's a time that you feel a sense of guilt being heaped upon you, whether by another person, because that happens too, guys, gosh, or by the enemy himself. You return to a verse like this, and you read that, because who can possibly overcome the sacrifice of Christ? No one, so his so, intercession so that is stronger. Word at that point, the fight, the I agree, or yeah. The, the, some philosophy of the world or the deception, exactly right well this that's part of the sword of the spirit that you're supposed to put on you know take up your armor yeah 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 Yeah, no and and that's a good point bruce like so the reason why we return to scripture too is the difference between just self-help is (laughs) well my opinion to help myself doesn't go very far but you know what does go far god's word that's a way better foundation to stand on than just me looking at myself in the mirror. I am awesome. I am worthy. I am great. Like, okay, okay, but if any of you do, that's fine, whatever. But, like, but, but I would way rather look in the mirror and, like, speak affirmations that come straight from Scripture. It's authoritative. But I, we've made this point in Romans, especially when we were talking about the, like, especially in Romans 8 9 stuff, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit and that whole stuff. Couldn't the enemy's best tool than if he literally holds no power over you be than just deception? That's the only thing he can now do to you. So if he can deceive you to make you think he has power, then the illusion is just as strong as literal shackles being on you. If he can make you convinced you have shackles, that's, the placebo effect is just as strong. So, again, if in going back to kind of summing up some major themes we've been talking about, so sorry it's kind of jumping all over the place, but it's important. Like, you are not in the flesh in the corrupted human state that you were in your fallen human state. You are in the spirit, and those are you cannot be in both. And so, if he can make you think you're in the flesh, then you live a whole different life. Guys, I cannot tell you how much my relationship to sin has changed based on knowing that because the only culprit for when I sin now is me. In a new, like, identity, choosing to sin is whole different than, oh, well, I'm just a sinner, so of course I'm going to keep on sinning. Oh, my gosh. It, like, almost puts, like, the culpability way worse. It's like, why did I do that? Because I was deceived of who I really am. Actually, on this very thought, it's funny, I was journaling, and I have it in my phone notes right here, because I was uh, was pumping gas in my car, and I had a deep theological thought, so I had to write it out. But I'm just going to read it to you. It's not polished or anything, but I was like, on this thought. When I succumb to sin as a Christian, it's not because of lack of power. A radical change has taken place and the Holy Spirit resides in me. To say I am powerless to sin is to deny the reality and to deny the true ownership over my sin. My struggles against sin are real, but they are not overwhelming. We can say no sin, uh, we can say no to sin and choose God's path of life. If Romans 8 hasn't convinced uh, you or me of this, then please consider Paul's words in First Corinthians ten, where he works. He speaks of God uh, always providing a way out of temptation. No so think temptation. about that. No temptation is taken here except as common. Demand. No temptation is over common to man. Like, like it, and a way out. He will always give a way out. But, but again, to a lot of Christians who don't get this, who have, are not in this room when we've had many of these conversations, and will continue to have many of these similar conversations. 1 Corinthians 10 makes no sense if you are still in the flesh also. Because there's not a way out. That's a contradiction. Sorry, I'm really passionate about this, because like, if you're still in the flesh, then sometimes there's a way out, but sometimes there's not. Yeah, No, that makes sense. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 only makes sense because Paul is consistent in any letter he writes that you are walking in new identity, whatever language he's using in that particular passage. But in that passage, speaking of them and their new covenant identity, especially with all the stuff going on in Corinth at that time, he's telling them, you cannot use temptation as an excuse. Yeah. I can't use temptation as an excuse. And although I'll continue to succumb to it more than I would like in life, I, it's this continual reorienting of who I am, that I'm not powerless. Not because of me. Again, it's not because of who I am or I'm so great, worthy, and all that. No, because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in me. And when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in someone, there's a radical change. So the devil didn't make you do it. So, so it's one of those weird things that, like, again, the the powers of darkness are powerless, but their one tactic, tactic can be deception. And so temptation is still real, whether it's, uh, you, you know, I, I don't care to parse out how much responsibility comes from the external powers of darkness or you made a dumb choice because you were thinking dumb you know whatever i, I however you going to parse that out it's up to each individual situation but I, I i agree it's you still have to take ownership well think about what like key manipulators do in like abusive relationships manipulation is a dangerous tactic why because they make you believe something either about yourself or about your situation that you can't get out and i'm not speaking about it super technically like i'm sure a lot of people could do a lot better but yeah, so that's what I'm saying, that you're like, you're trapped, you can't get out. The deception is you're trapped. Right, and so that, so again, so if the devil, again, since the powers of darkness, not just the devil, the pull powers of darkness, since they are powerless to your new identity, what all they can do, though, is try to deceive you that you do have shackles on you when you really don't, so it's all an illusion, but placebo effects are powerful. We all know that. And, and Romans 8, uh, verses thirty. Let's reread verse, starting at verse 35 through the end. And we're, like, basically out of time, so I'm sorry, I'm already going to tell you right now, we're going to go a few more minutes, uh, but not too much longer. I'm just going to, I'm going to be very selective on what we say here. So, starting back at verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Could affliction, distress, or persecution, could hunger or lack of clothing, could danger or sword, just as it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are super conquerors through the one who has loved us, Jesus. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither present things nor future things, neither powers, neither things of the realm above or neither things of the realm below, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, that's, like, awesome verse. Um, don't even need anything to say on it, to be honest, but I'll say a few quick things. Uh, the final verses of Romans 8, uh, which continue this uninterrupted flow of thought, of course, from verses 31 to 34. This really seals the case that God's love is triumphant and unconquerable. Like, he, he goes out of his way to name um, both, like, circumstances that could potentially, you would think that could potentially separate you from God's love. And then he goes on to name forces, like personified forces that could potentially separate you from God's love. And of course, the verdict is none of those things can. I'll be super brief on this, but if you think about those first few, affliction, distress, or persecution, those pertain to the hardships brought about uh, by someone um, who like, acts as an adversary against like, the Christian community. So, affliction, distress, persecution, that's a lot of that kind of realm of thing. Hunger, lack of clothing pertaining to the state of poverty where basic needs are wanting. Those don't separate you from God's love. Danger or sword, this pertains to peril or life-threatening situations. In fact, the the word sword acts as an idiom for death by execution in Paul's day. as a shorthand for that. So, again, it's that none of these things, despite your loyalty to Jesus, or like, you know, whatever, that these cannot separate you from Christ's love. Skipping over a ton of notes right now. Dang, that's really good stuff. Too bad. There's always none. (laughs) The forces, uh, then it goes into the forces that cannot separate us from God's love. Death nor life. Okay. Everyone is either dead or alive, so this covers all possible modes of existence. But if this isn't thorough enough, he goes on to angels nor rulers. Angels refer to transcendent beings, whether good or evil, while rulers covers the gamut of any governing authority. Present things nor future things. Any threat that either belongs to the present or future. So this covers all, think about it. If he's covering certain forces of like things that can separate you, this covers the gamut of like time itself. Things in the past or the things that the future can't separate you from God's love. That's really cool. Meditate on that in your own time because we're too short on time right now. Speaking of chronology. Powers, similar to angels or rulers, but might be inclusive of what some pagans believe to be the gods. So kind of just saying, okay, or whatever gods the Romans believe in. Those are not strong enough to separate from God's love. Moving on. The realm above nor to the realm below uh, It's common in ancient world to refer to the realm of heaven as above and the underworld as below. So he's just playing into how they viewed their ancient cosmic geography. That's a fun phrase to say. Uh, we can't unpack that right now. <laughs> ancient cosmic geography. That's next term, guys. We'll come back for that. Uh, no, Not really, but we can cover that a different time. Any other created thing. I love that at the end of this. Isn't that great? Any other created thing. This covers any imaginal gaps Paul might have left out from the list to make it clear that nothing has the ability to overpower God's covenant faithful love. He covers all of his bases. Then I just love how he just says the thing. So any other created thing. Like, did did I forget anything, folks? Like, that either. I can't. It's such an encouraging passage. Like, I, 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 I imagine that not all of you maybe studied this passage coming into this week. But I know we're about to go on a little hiatus before meeting again, but I would encourage you to keep rereading. I mean, yeah, all Romans 8, and dwell on some of your notes, your thoughts from this. But these verses in 31 through 39, like how encouraging. Because again, I think in the world of like self-help and conversations about love, love and you're, you're so loved, can be so flippant and trite. Can I even say that? But when it's on the authority of God's word, and it's in the context of you being in Christ, then there's a grip of love on you that literally no circumstance, and he covered those, or if cosmic force or force on the earth or whatever can strip you from that. Now that's worth getting behind. That's worth speaking over myself. That's worth reminding myself. Over. That's worth communing over. That's worth like me making sure I'm communing with God over that because he's the one that loves me like that. That's worth exemplifying in my life that if he loves me this much, man, how can I show that love to others? Like that's, that's worth sharing with others. Basically, in the eyes of like the empires of the world, or so even like the Roman world of that day, Christians would not be seen as impressive people. And so they were often actually the objects of like humiliation or degradation or even sometimes persecution. And so uh, both Paul's, both in Paul's day and even in now, right? But Paul has something to say that. He says that he calls us super conquerors, more than conquerors in Romans eight thirty-seven, which as you as you were kind of saying which means that although we like face severe obstacles and hardships in our life we triumph over those because we have god's love like even over those things like even more than that so nothing can strip us from it it's god's love is like unconquerable in that way and so like as like one concluding thought i would say that god's demonstration i mean even like his devotion to be for his people goes as far as giving his own son, so that's something we covered in Romans 8.32. Um, and I love like this thought here, like, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That's the perspective in this passage. Because all those things had their own motivation. Judas has his own motivation, Pilate had his own motivation, the Jews had their own motivation, But God, in the midst of all that, hid his own motivation love. For love's sake, he saved you. For love's sake, he will hold and keep you to the end, through it all. And then on the other side of that, even if you meet your end, you come to a new beginning where you are still in that unbroken love in his grip.